Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. There were a lot of questions and comments at the break, and I didn't have time at the break to respond, so I said I would just start responding. I guess the the, the first comment that came up a couple times at break was um, around parenting and, you know, how to help your kids get calm. And I always say to parents, if you want to bring these practices into your family, then you should practice and just model it. (laughs) There's no other way. If you try and introduce these practices to your children and you don't model it, then over time your parents or your children will find these practices annoying and start rebelling against them. Uh, You see this all the time of um, uh, agitated parents describing how their kids need to chill out. (laughs) So as a parent, you really need to model this practice. And it's a little bit more complicated with um, phones. Because when we were young, I'm saying we, this may not be true for you, but when I was young, um, I would see my mother take out her address book and look up somebody to call, and then she would call, and when she would make the phone call, she would say, hi, it's Bonnie, I'm calling for Tracy, or hi, Brian, it's Michael calling. And then as a kid, you know what your mother's doing. Like in the early 80s, like I think our parents probably spent more time doing tasks around the house than they did with their children. Nowadays, more parents spend time with their children, but the tasks are done on mobile devices. So the thing is, is when I was a kid, and my mother was on the phone, I knew who she was talking to and I knew what she was doing. Or she would take all the receipts and she would put them out on the table and she would write checks. So as a kid, my mom's not playing with me, I'm playing in the space, but I know what she's doing. There's a transparency in the situation, right? Nowadays, a parent is on the phone and the kid has no idea what they're doing on the phone. So I find that one of the things I try and do with my son is when I'm on the phone, I try to explain to him what I'm doing. Because otherwise, I'm just gone. And he also doesn't know how long I'm going to be gone for. Right? Before, a parent's driving along, they don't know where they're going, they stop the car, they take out a map, and then 
they look at the map and try and figure out where they are. The kids in the car know what their parents are doing. Now, that's all the kid sees, you see? So that's what's being modeled. Secondly, um, kids don't see adults being bored very much. So adults also need to model boredom to show kids what it's like to be bored and to not buy anything or look something up. I know, it doesn't sound like a hell realm. What do you mean? <laughs> um, another question uh, was about um, being empathic and um, possibly getting burnt out from being empathic. I'm not going to get into that too much because it drifts a little bit away from kind of the topic tonight, but all I'll say about that is that um, if you are a compassionate person, sensitive to other people, other people's pain will destroy you. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you can read all the literature you want about avoiding uh, empathy fatigue and so on, but the fact is, the more you practice, the more you will wake up. And the more you wake up, the more you feel the pain of other people. And one of the teachings of the Mahayana school is that the fact that you feel other people's pain over time motivates you to do something about it. And, and, and that's the way that I understand practice, is that we get into practice because we're having trouble. And then, as we learn about practice, we hear that we can become enlightened. So we're like, I'm going to get enlightened. And you like start like getting really serious about practice, and it's like all about me. And I mean, and I'm kind of nice to people, but I'm like practicing for me. And then you get to the door of enlightenment, and you put your hand on it. And then you realize, wait a second, if I'm connected to everybody, even non-humans, then how can I be free if other people are imprisoned? How can I be free if other people are in pain? How can I be free if my siblings are in pain? How can we be free if our parents are uh, suffering? And then you turn around and you realize we all have to go through the door together. So. If you work with people, and that's part of your practice, it's really important you have a practice so that you can be relaxed internally, so you don't get overwhelmed so easily. But I think if you're really tuned in to the pain of other people, it will break your heart. And um, that's okay. Thank God. Imagine if you were tuned into someone else's pain and it didn't break your heart. So, that's all I have to say about empathy. If you're empathic, it hurts. <laughs> Sorry. I want to be really compassionate, but I don't want it to hurt at all. <laughs> yeah, and I'm really open to feeling suffering, I just want it to feel good. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so those were the questions at break. So, uh, comments, questions? Yes. Um, if you could also just say your name, too. Down. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> I'm really kind of, um, I'm in tune with a lot of what you said. I think that, I, you know, I've noticed a lot of the ne negative repercussions of a lot of these habits. I've implemented a lot of the things that you talked about. And I almost find like I, there was a tipping point somewhere where paradoxically now I feel more disconnected from other people the less time that I spend in that collective space, the internet space, because I'm missing out on things that everyone else are, is participating in. Mm, yeah, yeah. um, so I'm really sort of stuck, like I feel like I'm, and, and there's a bit of judgment, it's like when you don't drink and like now I, I go and I get a drink that looks like a cocktail and I carry it around with me so people don't feel like I'm judging them. But you know, it's almost, and yeah, or, or I go on a bus and I feel like I'm ready to connect, I'm ready to give people my, my face and everyone's, everyone's face is in their phone. And so I'm even more keenly aware of my differentness. And yeah. um, so anyway, I just, I just wanted to bring Yeah, well thank you for sharing. I mean, you know, I think you're articulating something many of us feel. Um, my, my partner, Karina, she got rid of her, well, she didn't get rid of her iPhone. There was an accident. <laughs> and then, so she got one of those flip phones. Do you remember those? Like in the Adele video? And so she got a flip phone. And uh, the first thing she said after a couple days, she said, I don't feel important. Yeah. Um, so, I guess the first thing I want to say is just be really careful around pro-anti. Like, that's not our path. Our path is to enter the situation, every situation fresh. So, if you start developing a philosophy like, oh, there they are on their phone on the bus, <laughs> then you've made a me and you've made a them. Okay, so you can be more creative than that. Bump into them. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I yeah. So, I, but I think the, you also understand. I mean, I guess that that second example is probably less less significant to me than the first one about feeling less connected than I did before when I was connected because. Everyone else is in this other space together, and I'm, you know, they're talking about the. Did you see that thing on Facebook? Whatever, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I'm yeah and you may not have the pop culture references of Facebook things that are going on. Oh well. <laughs> yeah. If the objective is to be more connected, then. But but if you, if the objective is to feel more connected, and sometimes being online and checking things out on Facebook allows you to do that, then you should do that. Like, just be careful of the mind that goes, Facebook is bad, and it's not real connection. Because that's actually not true. There are many ways that really um, deep connection can happen through Facebook groups. So that's what I mean. Just be careful of the pro-anti mind. And our practices don't know mind. I don't know. We enter each situation, I don't know. And sometimes when you say, okay, I'm in this situation and I can't actually practice because I'm overwhelmed, then it's like, okay, I need to take a break. I need to not be on Facebook for a while. 
Yes. What's your name? Julie. My name is Julie. Okay. Uh, I'm in the process of writing my first book, and in that process, I'm considering creating a blog, which mm -hmm. I've never done and don't follow any. Yeah. But I am familiar with comment sections, mm -hmm. and uh, I have this fear, which I hear myself as a projection, it doesn't matter, it's real, it's a fear for me now, of one, being obsessed with people's comments, mm -hmm. and two, being a little too touched by people's potential negative comments, which don't even exist yet, but the fear does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have a thought? And Go ahead and plug it if you do. And if you do, do you, have, you, have you dealt with that? No. Well, I have dealt with it. I actually had so many negative comments on my TED Talk that they actually took the comments off. <laughs> That's the only thing you have seen, by the way, and I threw it and I'm here. I have to read it. So I think, I can't remember, but I think if you see it on YouTube, I think that there's comments, but I think if you see it through the TED way, there's no yeah. comments. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the Buddha had a really great teaching um, where he talked about how there's a wind, that, that all winds move in one direction, and then the current comes back in the other direction. And one of the winds he articulated was he called, uh, he called it uh, praise and blame. And looking at reviews is a little bit like that. You know, just to watch where your personality gets uplifted or it gets shot down. And so I would suggest that, you know, when you start blogging to keep up the confidence of blogging, don't read, don't read the reviews. Yeah. Disable them or just don't read them. Yeah. You can disable them. <laughs> well, somebody supposedly can disable them. <laughs> How about somebody from further back? Yes. Don't forget to say your name. Yeah. Is there any way you could please elaborate on perhaps the effects of corporate influence on individuals and then on culture? The effect of corporate influence? Yeah, I mean, I guess just, you know, two things come to mind. The first thing is that when you have some kind of stillness practice, you start to see how so much our, of our reactivity, our narrative reactivity, like the stories we repeat over and over, is time travel. Like our attention goes into the past or it goes towards the future and tells a story about our experience. Right, But what you start to notice over time is most of the stories that you tell, you didn't make up. Like most of the stories we tell that are reactive stories, they're learned, they're internalized. Some are internalized from childhood and what we saw in the caregiving environment. Some are internalized from high school hallway dynamics. Um, but a lot are internalized stories that we've received from corporate culture through different media outlets.
So stories we have about romantic love, stories we have about how much money we should make, stories we have about um, different body types or the elderly or, I mean, name it. And most of those stories we've learned from corporate culture. So in a way, in your meditative practice, you're working on recognizing those stories and not acting on them, not acting them out. It's really, really important. So in a way, it's kind of like, you know how there's some sea creatures that like clean pollution out of the ocean? Your meditation practice is like cleaning the corporate narrative out of our culture. Did I say that? That's a good idea. <laughs> um, but the other thing is you can use technology to interrupt those narratives also. Like, a lot of people are down about Instagram, you know. But I actually love Instagram. And I think that for some people, Instagram can be really empowering because it can let you represent yourself all different ways, however you want, right? You could argue, yes, but some people are just representing blah, 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 blah. But you can actually play around with the way you and your culture is represented through images. And a really good example of this is in the yoga community because there's a big movement in the yoga community of questioning through the lens of evidence-based science whether some yoga postures are good for you or not. And on Instagram, there's really interesting people showing alternative ways of entering or exiting yoga postures. And a whole culture is developing around it saying, hey, this is like really not good for you because of this. And I think that is a way of using technology to kind of interrupt habitual narratives that we haven't recognized as narratives, especially ones about how the body moves. So there's a start to that massive question. <laughs> how about like back there somewhere? Oh, a man. <laughs> I think, I'm assuming. Do you want the truth? <laughs> um, uh, the truth is, for the past year and a half, I've had a part-time researcher um, working with me. Um, because I've been working on uh, two new books that are research-based. And um, she's been helping me keep it all organized. So, that's the truth. I am completely fried when I try doing it all by myself. Yeah. I also wanted to say, just to plug it, um, I have a Twitter account. <laughs> but the reason why I'm mentioning this is because my New Year's resolution this year was to um, tweet about mental health every day on Twitter. So I know that some of you in here are following it, but Twitter is good for conversations, better than Facebook, I think. And... Um, so I've been taking a lot of the research I've been doing around mental health and putting it up on Twitter every single day. So um, 
it's been a fun way of using Twitter. Yeah. So that's how I deal with. Oops. That's how I deal with my research. <laughs> Um, just for an observational uh, comment, um, Canada is actually the leader in uh, neuroplasticity training. So people like me have come from Australia with yeah. children that are severely affected with learning disabilities and um, we're undergoing programs here. And so it's so interesting because technology directly influences the brain without doubt. And then talking about research, the segue into that is that there's amazing research happening in Canada at UBC that's world, world first. Looking at the type of um, neuroplasticity training that we do, whether it actually does change the brain, and they're mm -hmm. already seeing myelination changes and everything occurring. Mm -hmm. And this is just pioneering stuff. Mm -hmm. So it really makes me aware of what I take in and what changes in a perhaps negative and perhaps a positive way for want of better words that the type of technology that we choose to engage with and the type of information. I mean my kids' brains in a year have have, have changed mm -hmm. because of the type of stuff that they're getting at school eight hours a day. And yeah. that's no breaks and it's high intensity, high volume, everything. Yeah. So it just goes to show that we really do have to be really aware of what we're exposing ourselves to. Yeah. Um, and my background's in uh, paediatrics and um, neonates and stuff, and we, we know what even the mums do. Yeah. And, and their thought processes can influence birth outcomes and stuff, and birth weights, coming back to touch. You touch a little newborn baby that's underweight, we can get it feeding quicker and better and putting on weight than a baby that's not touched. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's, it's so exciting, but it's also really daunting. Yeah, for <laughs> so, sure. Um, yeah, just flexes. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, we need some way of having practices that teach us to use our attention more skillfully. And. The Dalai Lama is really interesting in this regard because when he teaches uh, school teachers and young people, he calls meditation the ethics of restraint. The ethics of restraint. The ability to be in pleasurable and unpleasurable experiences without having to go for sensual gratification. And that we know that that changes our brains. The science is there. Uh, the issue is now how we bring this more deeply into our culture. So the work you're doing is, is fabulous and at UBC. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So uh, one or two more, and then we'll call it a night because it's my bedtime almost. <laughs> Hi, my name is Michelle. Um, I have a real interest in mental health with teens and children. Mm -hmm. And I'm Uh, number one, they can't be helped by themselves. They need other people. That's number one. That's like really high up, number one. And number two, I think we need to help people balance their attention, as I've said all night, so that they can have a deeper relationship with kind of the massiveness of the mind. 
Like the mind is enormous and it's wild. So I've been writing a book uh, this year um, that I've been tweeting about, um, comparing, comparing, <clears throat> just looking at models of mental health and looking at it through the lens of meditative practice. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that historically, since, well, historically, at the same historical time, we created the national park system was the same and, and colonized a lot of land in the process. It was the same period of time where we colonized the psyche through the creation of the DSM and various psychiatric uh, categories that a lot of us really believe exist. And the point of the research that I found th that we stumbled on that was really fascinating was that in a way, what's so healing, whether you have depression or anxiety or whatever, um, and I'm not talking about acute mental illness, um, is part of the healing process is being able to develop a relationship again with the wild of the psyche. And the psyche is wild. And unless we have some kind of stabilizing practice, that wilderness of the psyche appears as threatening. And um, although we have wonderful categories to help orient us around mental health issues, ultimately um, we need much more than those categories, which is the support and practices to be able to have a relationship with the wild. And um, that's what I'm a cheerleader for. So those two things. Okay, last amazing question of the night. Pressure. Um, first of all, thank you for, your, um, for the relevance of your message and your delivery. I really enjoyed it. Um, about three years ago, I graduated from Sempreviva as a Hathi Yogi. And at the same, in the same year, I started a digital marketing agency. So it was really um, an interesting balancing act to be professional and stay trendy and then also have my meditation practice and develop myself as a, um, just continue my practice. And um, ironically, after two years of doing this, I realized that my morning practice was essential to like my productivity and efficiency and just keeping up and um, mantras and meditation work so good. And um, just from observing, observing to getting to know your message, um, my question would be, I think what's really impressive about your brand, or um, my experience of your brand, is... I've never heard someone say that, my brand. <laughs> 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 that's from my marketing. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it's my observation is that your delivery is so consistent in person as well as online, which Great. is really difficult to contest. You know, like there's only so much, it's not a visceral experience. So I was just wondering if you are open to sharing a little bit, like how do you, when you are in front of technology, when you are publishing, when you are posting, like how do you maintain who you are and um, like what are some of your like ground rules or your own kind of philosophies around it? Good question. <laughs> um, well. uh, am I paying you for this? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, basically, when I was 
20, I guess. Um, and when I was young, I wanted to be a monk. That was my goal. And um, I started doing long retreats, and I just thought, I just want to be enlightened. That's it. That's the only thing I wanted. And um, one of the things that I promised myself, is kind of like a vow I made, was that because at, at the time when I was practicing, I was so young compared to the, like the people who were on retreats with me were in their 60s. Um, that wasn't an era where people my age were, nowadays people my age are going on retreats, but it wasn't like that then. And I saw a lot of them, they had like business careers or whatever, and then they would like be fried and then they'd go on retreat and couldn't understand why they couldn't concentrate. And I felt like I made a vow, although I wouldn't probably then have said the word vow, but that practice would be at the center of my life and everything else would come out of my practice. And I, I really live like that. Like sometimes my daily schedules make it upside down because I travel or whatever. But I really consider practice as the core of my life, the core relationship I have with life is through that lens of practice. Um, and everything else comes out of that. So if you experience my message as having some continuity, it, the, I hope that that's what you're feeling. Um, and, and that's how I manage my, my life. And then when things start get over, getting overwhelming, I can either feel it in my practice or my wife tells me. <laughs> You're fried. I hope I answered your question. Um, I think it's really important to have a stillness practice every day. I think it's really important to have a movement practice every day. And I also think it's really important to seriously investigate the ethical precepts that underpin practice. Um, in our culture, we're so interested in mindfulness practices and movement practices, but one of the things we haven't looked at that comes with all these practices is the ethical foundation in these practices. And traditionally, when somebody really wants to transform their life in the Buddhist tradition or in the yoga tradition, the first thing they would look at is ethics. How they speak, how they act, how they think, how they behave. And um, in our culture, psychologically, if someone trains as a psychologist, they don't ever learn about ethics except professional ethics. So, um, when I say that practice is at the core, that's like a pillar of the practice that's at the core is like really looking at my behavior and my choices through those lenses. So, um, so thank you very much everybody for coming. Um, this, this, it feels like this is like an annual event. It's just like, it's like a family, you know, it's so wonderful. I love it. So it's so nice to come here and recognize also so many faces and uh, new ones as well. Um, so uh, before we leave, uh, for those of you who are coming uh, to the workshop, it's not going to be here. Um, it's going to be at the Granville Island studio, which is really beautiful if you haven't been there. 
Um, we're going to start with yoga asana practice. We'll do some pranayama practice, some meditation practice, and some study. All in one day. And, tomorrow, and on Sunday afternoon also. Um, up here there's a mailing list. So if you want to be on my newsletter, you can just very clearly print out your email so the poor volunteer who has to transcribe them can read them really, really well. Um, and uh, thank you very much. And I can stay around a few minutes if anybody else has, has comments or questions. So, good night. Mike, do you want to say anything about your course? Oh, hi, Gloria. <laughs> Which one? The meditation course? Oh, yeah, let me tell you about the meditation course. Um, I'm offering, uh, I think it's over almost four months. Yeah. Uh, a meditation teacher training course. So people who are interested in, who have some meditation experience, and they're interested in learning the skills to deliver meditation practice to groups, or in schools, or in a clinical setting, or in a yoga setting. Um, it's a really in-depth course. It's a six-day intensive in... February? Yeah. And then there's some online learning in between, and then there's another six-day intensive three months later. And um, it's a really good schedule, and um, it's an amazing curriculum. And uh, um, I've offered it before, but never in Vancouver, so it's really great to offer it here. So if you're interested, it's all, it's all on the website. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And thank you to Gloria for inviting me here every year. Okay, now for real, good night. <laughs>